Welcome to Conflicts of Interest, Swiss Peace's academic podcast dedicated to research in peace and conflict. The idea is simple. You either work or study in this field, and you have a long list of books you've been wanting to read, but you never have the time. So we fill this void. On a quarterly basis, we carefully select one of the most original recent books related to peace building. We meet with the author in this podcast to discuss it so that you grasp its core argument and relevance for your work. And then perhaps you will also go out and read it. I am Dana Landau, senior researcher at Swiss Peace, and for this episode, I'm excited to welcome Elizabeth King, professor of international education and politics at New York University, as well as Cyrus Sami, associate professor in the Wilf Family Department of Politics, also at New York University. Elizabeth and Cyrus are joining us today to discuss their recent book, Diversity, Violence, and Recognition, How Recognizing Ethnic Identity Promotes Peace which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. As the title suggests, the book discusses a question of great relevance for peacemaking and peacebuilding around the world. Should divided states emerging from violent conflict explicitly recognize ethnic diversity in their political systems? Does this promote peace or can it further entrench divisions? The authors develop a new theory for understanding the adoption of ethnic recognition, as well as its effects on peace. And their work is based on quantitative analysis and qualitative case studies. Elizabeth and Cyrus, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. So maybe we'll just start off with our usual feature, which is the news anchor. So I'd like you just to answer one question, which is when did current events last make you think about your book and why? Well, this happens every day. And, um, you know, the, the question is a great place to start. One place, for instance, is the current crisis in Ethiopia that raises questions about what the future state will look like and how different ethnic groups will coexist therein. Um, news coming out of Afghanistan makes us ask questions about issues of exclusion and group-based repression. Uh, Kenya, another context in which we work, you know, there have been debates in recent months over proposed constitutional amendments that focus on managing ethnic diversity and the goal of avoiding divisive elections. Or even here at home in the United States, you know, questions of racial justice in the United States, how to treat different identity groups in ways that address accumulated inequalities and build peace. So in short, the question of how to use institutions to address intergroup inequalities and conflict is omnipresent. And Cyrus and I are always finding news articles that we email to each other. You know, almost every day these questions arise. Yep, absolutely. So this is actually already a good introduction to uh, to sort of the scope of the book because it has very detailed research on specific cases, but it also has um, a cross-case analysis. And so there are lessons, um, hopefully, that we'll discuss applicable um, beyond some of the cases. But maybe let's start um, with a, with how you open the book, which is with a contrast between Rwanda and Burundi. These are two countries that have taken very different approaches to, to ethnic recognition. And both countries, I understand, that you had also previously conducted research on. So was this difference between how they approached recognition, the, the initial observation that motiv motivated this book, and maybe would you like to discuss these two cases to illustrate the main argument you make in the book? 
Yeah, so um, those are the cases that really inspired this work. Um, over 10 years ago, uh, Elizabeth and I, we were both doing research at Columbia University. I was a doctoral student. Elizabeth was a postdoc there. She was wrapping up her dissertation research um, on education and conflict in Rwanda. Uh, I was wrapping up my dissertation research uh, on uh, peace building and post-conflict reconstruction strategies in Burundi. And among ourselves discussing uh, what we were working on respectively in the two countries, we obviously noted uh, the stark uh, differences in institutional strategies that the two countries were pursuing. So despite lots of similarities in terms of their ethnic makeup, the economic conditions and histories of violence, um, leaders in those two countries, they made diametrically opposed choices. So in Rwanda, references to ethnicity were banned except in genocide commemoration. But in Burundi, by contrast, um, ethnic quotas were used extensively. And so the, the, the question arose, you know, as to why you saw these different choices, despite so many structural similarities. And then, you know, what is the wisdom of one or another of these choices? And so um, that inspired our thinking and uh, the subsequent uh, 10 years uh, of, of, of research uh, resulted in a theory um, that the two countries illustrate very well. Um, so first, the theory concerns uh, the concept of recognition. And what we mean by that is uh, formally affirming that the body politic is constituted of different ethnic identity groups. So it's the opposite of indifference towards these ethnic identities. And recognition is institutionalized when these identities are named uh, in constitutions and other um, you know, institution-defining uh, documents and laws and so on. Um, recognition can be coupled with quotas and other group-differentiated rights, uh, so affirmative action and, and things like that. So then, as for the theory, um, we propose that recognition has two kinds of effects. The first is what we call an assuring effect. So um, under a recognition regime, you know, um, on the basis of, you know, uh, your group identity and its inclusion or its um, acknowledgement in formal institutions, you know that you belong. If there are quotas, you know you will have access to power and opportunity. It's sort of assured, at least group members will. Um, but the second is uh, what we call the mobilization effect. So um, ethnic recognition licenses the use of ethnic categories in political discourse and has the potential to keep ethnicity salient uh, in, this, in this way. So then we use this kind of you know, characterization of the effects of recognition to try uh, to make some inferences about why you might see differences among, among leaders in their um, support for recognition and their choice, um, and then also what the effects of recognition might be. So leaders' interest in recognition is gonna depend on whether the assuring effect um, and the mobilization effect work together to secure their political position uh, or whether they somehow operate to undermine their political position. So if you're a plurality or a majority group leader, such as um, uh, the leadership in Burundi uh, that is from uh, the majority uh, Hutu uh, group, um, these two effects work together to secure your position. But if you're a minority group leader, and so uh, Kagame, um, as a member of the minority, uh, the Tutsi minority in Rwanda, is a representative of this, 
um, these two effects clash. So the assuring effect might be helpful in reducing conflict uh, between groups, but the mobilization effect is going to put you as a member of a minority group at a structural disadvantage vis-a-vis uh, -vis the larger groups in the country. Um, and so, um, you know, our theory proposes that there's going to be big differences in the way um, things play out under plurality rule versus minority rule. And then the consequences of recognition are also going to depend on how these two effects play out in interaction with each other. So along similar lines, things should go more smoothly under plurality or majority ethnic leadership, uh, but not so much under minority ethnic leadership. Thank you. Yes. And uh, you also have, uh, you open the empirical part of the book with a large cross-country quantitative analysis um, of, uh, I actually noted it down because it's very impressive, 57 countries that experienced violence uh, since 1990. And then you look at these so-called constitutional moments, so peace agreements, political settlements, and so on, to see whether they Uh, the leaders have opted for recognition, so to whether they mention ethnic diversity and different groups. Um, and then you also, in the analysis, look at whether this is implemented, to what extent it's implemented, and then uh, and sort of a lot of what you've just described, this, the, the, the theory around the effects that one would hope for in recognition, um, you bring it back to this idea of the ethnic power configuration. So as you said, the plurality and, and minor, or, or minority leaders. So um, maybe you'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what came out of this quantitative research um, across all these different countries and constitutional moments. Were there any surprising findings for you? Any, any trends or variations? Well, um, you know, as I, I was just characterizing, our, our theory predicts that minority leaders should be much less likely to adopt recognition. And that is, in fact, what we see. So um, we looked at 86 constitutional moments um, in the countries uh, that you mentioned. These are conflict-affected states, uh, and these are constitutional moments happening since 1990. Um, and what we found was that countries with minority group leaders adopted recognition at a much lower rate. So 35 percentage points lower than countries with plurality group leaders. Um, the overall um, rate of adoption, I mean, it's almost even. So uh, about uh, 40% uh, of countries uh, adopt uh, recognition. So it's quite prevalent, but um, this rate is much, much less common um, under minority leadership than uh, under plurality or majority group leadership. So this was a striking pattern. Um, This difference was much larger than differences that are associated with other things related to international engagement uh, or features uh, of the domestic political system. Um, so it's a big difference uh, and bigger than uh, the association that we see with other variables that you might think about. Um, then when we were looking at um, the effects of recognition, we found that on average, Recognition is associated with less violence, more democratic inclusiveness, and greater economic vitality. And the sort of clarity of the evidence was something that we weren't anticipating. We looked more closely into the patterns, and what we found was that these effects were driven almost entirely by the effect of recognition under plurality ethnic rule. And so that was another implication of our theoretical um, analysis that Uh, things should go fairly smoothly under plurality ethnic rule because all of these effects of recognition kind of uh, operate uh, in the same direction in promoting political stability and a sense of security among leaders, whereas under minority ethnic rule, um, you don't have that. And so our expectation was that under minority ethnic leaders, 
uh, you would see, um, you know, efforts to kind of, um, you know, neutralize or mitigate the potential um, clash uh, between these two effects uh, of recognition that might then uh, result in compromises in terms of like uh, the the benefits uh, with respect to violence or democratic inclusiveness. And that's sort of what we see. We don't really see that ethnic recognition operates very well uh, under minority leadership. And so that, you know, raises a whole host of uh, other questions. But, you know, those are sort of the top line uh, findings that we had from the quantitative analysis. Yes, and you you mentioned a little bit some of the alternative explanations that that might come to mind, maybe to some of our listeners about about why a country might adopt recognition or not, such as um, maybe a particular colonial legacy uh, that is prone to to sort of a colorblind or republican approach, like in French colonies or former French colonies, or um, for example, the involvement of international actors. And and as you just said, you find actually that it is more the ethnic power configuration that that explains the variation. Um, I was wondering because we might have some listeners who are themselves sort of in the practitioner, peace building, peacemaking community, and it seems to me that often in that community the role of international um, maybe mediators or the UN or international actors involved in these um, in these uh, negotiation moments around peace agreements that there might be a tendency if I read your results correctly, to overestimate their their influence or their how much they're actually making a difference to to the outcomes, um, is that would you like to comment on that issue as well? Sure. Th yeah. Thanks for asking, Dana. So when we were looking, as Cyrus talked about, there's really two questions. We're looking at the adoption of recognition, that is, when when leaders are making the choice to recognize or not to recognize ethnic groups, and then there's the question of the effects. So if I understand correctly, what you're asking is it's about this adoption of recognition. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense that um, mediators or the United Nations um, or casual observers might think that it is these international factors that are pushing domestic leaders to choose to recognize ethnic groups. And so we wanted to investigate that. And in seeking, as Cyrus said, to explain the cases where recognition is adopted and not adopted, we looked at different explanations. And we divided those into sort of external factors, looking at things like, as you said, colonial history and international engagement, separate from internal factors, things like rate of democracy, um, how the war ended, uh, and of course, the ethnic power configuration. So in terms of international engagement, we thought about how to operationalize this, and we operational, operationalized, there's a tricky word for us this morning, uh, as a peacekeeping operation mediated by one of the P5 members or a UN Security Council resolution in the years prior to this constitutional moment, that is the constitution or the, the peace agreement. And what we found with those factors was almost identical rates of adoption when you had a yes or a no in terms of this international engagement. But rather where we saw much more difference in terms of adoption or non-adoption of recognition was these internal structural conditions. And in particular, the ethnic power configuration and the, this really large difference, this surprisingly large difference that Cyrus and I observed by, by far the most important factor You know, plurality-led regimes adopted it, what, 60% of the time, minority regimes, something like 24%, percentage, uh, percent, so a 36-point difference. So, uh, you know, not only in the cross-national analysis, but also in the qualitative analysis, where we delve deeper into the cases of 
Rwanda, Burundi, and then also Ethiopia, we, we looked at these factors and we saw a much stronger case for the importance of these internal structural conditions. And if we step back and think about what this means, Cyrus and I think that there's a lot of pessimism that dominates reporting and scholarship on peace processes today that often overlooks really noteworthy institutional innovations by political leaders. So our book joins what we hope is a large set of books, newer books that are offering a different take and trying to learn from these really um, institutional innovations, these creative uh, efforts. Thank you. Yes, and so you've already mentioned the the really in-depth uh, three case studies that are also in the book that explain really the mechanisms in, in much more detail and also go into sort of testing some of the possible alternative explanations. Um, and uh, the last one of them, as you mentioned, in, is Ethiopia, which is sadly in the news again um, a lot. And I wonder whether some of our listeners might be might be thinking about about that and the question of, of, of recognition. It seems that this is this might be a case where we see a removal of recognition and, and obviously violence again. So um, would you like to say a bit more about how the current situation um, relates to the findings from when you were researching and writing the book? It's very troubling, of course, to see the events unfolding in Ethiopia right now. And we're concerned for Ethiopians who are struggling through the current crisis. From the perspective of the book, Ethiopia presented an anomalous case in the sense that the TPLF was a minority regime that adopted recognition in contrast to the much more common global practice of pluralities adopting and minorities avoiding recognition. So in Ethiopia, we have a context with a huge number of different ethnic groups a history of violent conflict along ethnic lines and the exclusion of, of the, most of those groups. And historically, we had non-recognition. Um, but then when the, the EPRDF uh, came to power in the early 1990s, they instituted this ethnic federation, which is probably the most extreme, we could say, form of recognition in Africa, going so far as to grant the right to secession for different ethnic groups, different regions. And you know, just before the book went to press, Abi, a, a leader from the plurality ethnic group, came to power. You know, and then you re recheck your analysis, make changes to the book and to the, the chapter. Um, but what we saw there was what we could say, like remedying of this institutional mismatch. So, you know, in line with the theories that we were proposing in the book and in finding in other cases, a plurality leader that adopts recognition, um, and of course he inherited it, um, but typically has more success than when a, a minority leader does so. What Abby did though then was with the formation of the Prosperity Party in 2019, uh, indicated a shift in terms of how ethnicity would be recognized. Uh, so the Prosperity Party was the successor to the, the EPRDF, and some of the principles that, that we've seen are uh, more centralization. And of course, a key feature was to dissolve the ethnically-based regional parties that had constituted the EPRDF, including the, the TPLF, um, who, who did not agree to join the uh, Prosperity Party, the TPLF being the, the Tigrayan uh, group who had, had really the, the leading role in the prior EPRDF coalition. 
So it wasn't the removal of all ethnic recognition in it, all of the facets of ethnic recognition, which is really deeply entrenched across the country. But there was an important change, an important signal in the center of power. And as you note, violence has ensued. So I think it raises a lot of questions from our book and for our work that we want to continue to think about. And if you'll let me mention just a, a few of them. So number one would be the question of ethnic fractionalization and some of the scope conditions for our theory. So, you know, the, the genesis of the project came out of Burundi and Rwanda, where there's very low ethnic fractionalization and the starkness of the difference between the minority and the plurality or the majority is, is very clear. Across our cross-national analysis, we found that our findings hold less strongly in cases of high ethnic fractionalization like Ethiopia. So this is certainly something that we want to continue to think more about uh, in terms of how it's uh, applicable both as a theory and what it means in practice. Another one, it picks up on something that, that Cyrus mentioned already in that these positive effects of recognition that we see in terms of declines in political violence increase in, in economic um, vitality and, and in demo, democratic practices are driven by contexts of plurality, ethnic rule. So we, you know, I think Ethiopia in this case asks us, well, what about change, right? So we're seeing change under this recognition regime. And also what about the longer term? In our book, we're able to explore sort of the short to the medium run effects. So this is another set of questions I think that the, the Ethiopia case raises. Perhaps a, a last one is, is something that we raise in the conclusion to the book and that we've been asked a lot about in talks, so certainly want to think more about. And that is that there are, of course, different ways that recognition can work. So it could be that recognition serves to integrate. Cyrus mentioned his work on the Burundi quota system. It could also be, though, that recognition serves to separate. And that has been more of what we've seen under Ethiopian ethnic federalism. So in the book, we talk about some paradoxical effects in some cases, Burundi in particular, where actually through recognition, ethnicity is being depoliticized. But the, the Ethiopia case pushes us to really ask more about what's happening in that process. And do we need to think more about integration versus separation as to how um, recognition is working in practice. No, all of that to say we're going to be following Ethiopia very closely. Absolutely. Thank you for this fascinating answer. And I think um, I wanted to ask as a next question uh, something that relates to this, which is about the concept of ethnic recognition that in the in the sort of theoretical part of the book you outlined that that is you understand that at a kind of at a higher level than other studies that have looked at particular policies that could all be subsumed under ethnic recognition, which might actually vary from, uh, some people would argue, maybe rather symbolic things like um, language rights uh, or, or just pure mention uh, to, to, to uh, ethnic federalism or quota system or consociationalism. So um, sort of if you could say a bit more about how you, you came 
to decide to use it at that level, at the sort of higher level of ethnic recognition and how you hope that maybe other scholars will, will take this work forward or you will in upcoming work? Um, yeah, I, I mean, in the book, we 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 discuss um, our decision to work with this high level concept. I mean, we thought that, you know, in terms of theoretical analysis, um, it seemed like a reasonable way to um, organize and productively abstract uh, away from all of the kind of specificity um, and, you know, detail uh, that make it sort of difficult, uh, you know, to construct a theory that travels. So uh, the idea was to, you know, come up with a general theory that we think captures um, important dilemmas uh, that, people who are writing constitutions in conflict affected contexts might face. And, you know, our sense, and it's, you know, it's up to readers to uh, assess for themselves was that, you know, it was useful to do this. It was just a way for us to be able to theoretically organize cases and capture what we think are essential points um, and concerns in, in, in the debates that are variously referenced issues of the politics of accommodation uh, or, um, you know, the role of multicultural institutions or, or things like that. I, I think what we were able to do through the concept of recognition uh, was to come up with a synthesis that helped us to organize uh, a number of strands of literature. And so then in doing so, you know, we are commenting, in effect, uh, on on the arguments in those different literatures. And um, I'd say we didn't, you know, we didn't come into the project with an axe to grind. Um, we were open-minded about whether recognition was a wise institutional strategy. I mean, we were really approaching this from the perspective of a puzzle uh, that we had observed. Um, and then also appreciating that there were heated arguments on either side uh, for and against using recognition type strategies. What we found, though, uh, you know, through the 10 years or so uh, of research was that the evidence spoke much more clearly than we expected. We found that recognition can work. And contrary to the concerns about entrenching political salience, when recognition is used cleverly in the design of institutions, it can paradoxically help to depoliticize ethnicity. I think that um, the comparison that Elizabeth made between the Ethiopia case and Burundi case is instructive in that regard. It's something that, you know, um, you know, we kind of came to understand only through our work on the cases, and it's something we'd like to do more work on, are the differences between a more integration-oriented strategy that's pursued in Burundi, where the quotas are used to integrate institutions and, and as a result, sort of remove ethnicity as a line of contestation, as opposed to strategies that do more to separate and then reinforce ethnicity as a line of contestation. I think that's an important difference and one that we you know, want to do more work on. The takeaway then is that in context of accumulated intergroup and uh, what um, you might call horizontal inequality, taking from the work of Francis Stewart, um, our results suggest that it's good to address those issues head on, to go ahead, reference group identities, um, and then design institutions that can harness these what we call paradoxical effects that can potentially remove identity as a basis for ongoing contestation. Thank you. And maybe I'll just add for our listeners who, who haven't read the book yet, but I hope will, that you have a very thorough analysis at various levels of, of the effects. So uh, we've had discussions here on the podcast about positive, negative peace and so on. And you really try to capture all these different ways in which this might affect um, outcomes. And it is uh, quite striking, uh, your results. So um, 
maybe I think that we've we've covered a lot of ground, and in the interest of time, maybe we have to uh, head towards the end. I do also want to mention and actually ask you to say maybe a word about a website that you made for the book, uh, where there are also additional resources. What might uh, listeners find there? Yeah, thank you for asking. So this is diversity-violence-recognition.com. And, you know, part of the genesis of the website was that our book came out in April 2020. So think about that time as the pandemic rising. And we had to be creative in a context where we were not doing some of the things we thought that we'd be doing, like in-person book talks and, and these book launches. So we're actually really grateful that we were pushed to be creative uh, because, of course, we're thrilled that the book is out, but the broader research agenda is ongoing. And so on the, the website, you'll find basic information about the book, um, media that we've done. So we'll certainly include a link to this podcast. But there are three additional features that are worth mentioning. One is that the data set is public. So we would love other people to do work that builds on and takes off from what we've done here. The second thing is that there is a blog that is dedicated to conversations surrounding this question of to recognize or not and its effects. And we've written a couple uh, based on questions that have arisen out of some of the virtual talks that we've given. And then we've also had terrific guests write in. For instance, you know, building on our conversation on Ethiopia, our first posting featured then PhD student, now faculty at University of Denver, Hillary Matfis on current events in Ethiopia. And our newest posting, uh, Cyrus just mentioned, Professor Francis Stewart, emeritus at Oxford, of course, whose foundational work on horizontal inequalities was so inspiring for our own. And she just recently posted a, a Q&A with us on, on the blog. So this range of people from whom we and our, our readers can learn. And last thing, you did ask for just a word, but I've gone on a tiny bit more, is that we put on some teaching resources. We're so happy to hear that people are using a book, our book, in their class. And so we offer some ways that faculty could use it, some discussion prompts, some assignment suggestions, ways to, to be in touch with us. So we're really hopeful that your listeners might have a look. And if there are people who are listening whose work coincides with ours or pushes ours, challenges ours, we'd be very eager to hear from them also um, as they might like to contribute to the blog. Great. Thank you for that. And um, I'm sure uh, teachers out there with uh, who are out of ideas for assignments uh, will be glad for the work you've done uh, with suggestions. So um, we do have to draw to a close. So we will um, end with our special feature, which is the policy window. So um, imagine you're standing in front of 200 policymakers at something like the World Economic Forum or a similar event, and you have the opportunity to bring home the key messages from your research. What should these policymakers consider at they move, as they move forward? I would say that, um, I mean, the, the question in contexts where we have intergroup inequalities and conflicts, um, the question of whether we should pursue a strategy that you know, affirms these group identities in institutions or remains kind of indifferent uh, to them. I mean, it's one that comes up all the time, over and over and over. Um, there's a lot of debate about it. A lot of the debate is motivated by philosophical arguments one way or the other. Um, our contribution here is to consult history and to develop, um, you know, uh, theoretical logic through which we can understand the basis of this choice and its consequences. And I would say that on the basis of both the historical record and theoretical logic, recognition-based strategies can and have been used to good effect. 
You can capitalize on recognition strategies that efficiently address intergroup inequality and conflict while also neutralizing ethnic identity as a basis of contestation. Like it's possible to construct institutions to accomplish that. So leaders in countries that are facing ethnic um, inequality and conflict, they're not alone. There are examples that they can draw from. Um, leaders around the world have been experimenting and innovating with institutions and generating useful lessons, and we should look to them. Um, our analysis, it clarifies background conditions that you know, leaders and members of the international community who are assisting in transition processes, uh, it, it clarifies conditions that can help you to determine you know, which countries um, history provides more or less relevant examples in pursuing this kind of institutional design. Thank you very much for, for this pitch. And thank you both, Elizabeth and Cyrus, for the conversation and for the fascinating book. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. And thanks for listening. If you're intrigued, you can find your way to Oxford University Press and buy the book, Diversity, Violence and Recognition, How Recognizing Ethnic Identity Promotes Peace. So thank you all for listening. And this was delivered to you by our producer, Sanjali Jobarte, and me, Dana Landau. There is more from us. If you go to Conflicts of Interest on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you'll find our previous three episodes and more episodes will follow. And to keep us motivated, please hit like and subscribe. Bye-bye.